Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to another episode of Ask Andrew, the mystery podcast, where it all, you know, that's all I'll say about that. I have a question that I'm going to answer from somebody named Cheryl, which is a big picture question, but a very practical one. The question goes like this. If one wanted to start a classical school, co-op or university model or college school, what would be the top five aspects or ideals needed to be considered or implemented? Or, another way of asking the question, what ought one look for in choosing a classical school to send children to or work at? Good question. The basic, I'm taking it this way, the basic question is what are the most, what are, the, what are five of the most important ideals or, or aspects that need to be part of a classical school? And then I'm going to push it further and say, a school, what what are you looking for? What are the five most important uh, distinctives? And now, if any of you have seen my book, Classical Education, that I wrote with Dr. Gene Edward Veith, if you've seen the third edition, um, copies of which are available through the Searcy store, and if you make a donation of $1,000 or more, I'll be happy to autograph it. All right, I'd be happy to autograph it for less than that, but I would for that much. Um, you know, 501c3, all that sort of thing. Anyway, so so in that book, I listed four elements of classical education. And I think it's worth mentioning them here in light of the question. Uh, but I want to frame it perhaps a little bit differently. If you listen to Ask Andrew, you've probably heard me give the definition we use here at, at Circe, our understanding of what a classical education is. And so, the answer to this question turns on that definition. So let me repeat it. Classical education is the cultivation of wisdom and virtue. And how are wisdom and virtue cultivated? By nourishing the soul on the true, the good, 
and the beautiful. Now, I contend that the best way to do that is through the rediscovery of the seven liberal arts. So I add in my definition, my understanding, by means of the seven liberal arts. But as Christians, we're not content to just have worldly wisdom and virtue, are we? Ultimately, it is so that the student in Christ is better able to know God, to glorify God, and to enjoy him forever. So if you're looking for a school to put your child in, or if you want to start a school, my advice, my, my personal recommendation would be that you ask the, the, the school leadership or you ask the steering committee or the, the group that you're possibly working with to start the school. In other words, you, 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 no matter what your relationship with the school is going to be, if you're going to have a relationship with a school, my advice would be to ask them, what do you do in this school to cultivate wisdom and virtue? Now, I think you should ask that question no matter what kind of school you're looking for. I think that's just the question to ask about a school. What are you doing to cultivate wisdom and virtue in my child? I mean, if you're going to put your kid on a baseball team, you, you should ask that question. And they probably can't answer it because it's not the common language of our culture, but it's something they do, right? A baseball coach, why is he a coach? to cultivate baseball virtues in your child. Well, schools make bigger claims, right? They, they insist that the whole world needs them. So what are they doing to cultivate wisdom and virtue in the child? I would, I would explore that question. I would find out. The second thing is, I would ask, how are truth, goodness, and beauty manifested in the life of the school? You might do it as three separate questions. How is the truth manifested in your life as a school? And I think the, the word manifested or even embodied is an important uh, way of putting it because it's easy, to, uh, it's easy to say, well, we make these statements that are true or we defend the truth verbally. But how is the truth manifested? How is it embodied in the life of the school? And how is goodness? And don't let them just answer this morally. How is goodness embodied in the life of the school and beauty. Now, if you're starting a school, if you're starting a co-op, if you have a family, I would just urge you to spend time every day asking yourself, how do we embody truth in our house, in our home? How do we embody goodness in our home? How do we embody beauty in our home? And if it's a co-op, how do we embody truth, goodness, and beauty in the way we do this? Uh, if it's a school, how do we, how, if you're starting a school, how are we going to embody the true, the good, and the beautiful? And don't ever stop asking that question. Now, the smaller an institution is, the more easily it can, um, how can I say this, fix something that is not true, good, or beautiful. So I, I recommend that you take your time when you're getting started. But of course, the flip side of that coin is that the benefit of being able to change fast becomes the negative of being able to be changed fast once you start figuring things out. So you really want to find ways, if I may put it, to institutionalize the true, the good, and the beautiful. You want the curriculum to manifest the order of beauty, the order of truth, the relations between realities in a way that is true, good, and beautiful. Okay, so, so that, that's a question you, you want to pursue. Now, having mentioned curriculum, I want to I want to bring in my third ideal, and that is 
I'm going to call this a rich logocentrism. It is a very, very, very common thing for Christian schools to call themselves Christ-centered. I would heartily recommend to you that if you have a school, if you are a member of a school in school leadership and you claim that your school is Christ-centered, that you ask yourself what you mean by that. How is Christ-centeredness manifested in the curriculum? Um, Now, the word centered, or or logocentrism, if you like, but the word centered is is formal. It's It's a relational term. Okay, so you can't you can't just say, well, we talk about Jesus in every class and we pray a lot. That's not what it means to be Christ centered. To be Christ centered means that Christ is the son of the solar system. He has a formal impact on the way everything in the school relates to everything else. And and we need to be thinking about what that means. It's not easy. It is not easy. Um, it will affect the content of the curriculum. Absolutely. But it affects the form of the curriculum first. How are subjects related to each other? Do your children, do your graduates understand the relationship between the humanities and the sciences? Do they, And I, when I say understand, I mean, have they experienced the right relationship between the humanities and the sciences over the 12 years of their experience in the school? And, and, and are they related to each other because our Lord Jesus, as the one who holds all things together, properly related the sciences to the humanities? Or is, am I even using a modernist terminology that, that already betrays the game, right? We need to ask, really, what does it mean that Christ is the center of our school? Yes, it affects our social relationships, but how does it affect our understanding of things? How does it affect the spirit of how we do things? How does it affect our thinking? How does it affect us physically? We need to be exploring those questions and we need to be, and, and therefore the ideal is logocentrism. Now, a, a logos basically, conceptually, what, what the word logos means is undefinable because it's so rich, but it does mean something. And, and part of what it means is a principle of unity, Right, a message. Yes, that's legit. But it's the principle of unity, of harmony. And if a school is Christ-centered, then Christ is the principle of harmony of thought, activity, belief, everything. How does assessment in the school manifest logocentrism or Christ-centeredness? Um, I'll just give you one example of what I'm getting at, so it doesn't sound all spiritual. If, if you're a logocentric school, if, if Christ is the center of the school, then in my view, language itself is going to be a big deal because our Lord Jesus created the universe by speaking. Okay, that means that language needs to be treated with reverence. If it isn't, then in that degree, you're not Christ-centered. Okay, if, if, if grammar is not important, you're not in that sense right there on that point. You're not Christ-centered. Okay, so so rather than using Christ-centeredness as a marketing phrase or a, or a nice dream, let's think about what we mean by it. That's what I'm arguing for. And I'm not trying to be harsh here. I'm just saying let's, let's really think about it and make it the reality of what we're building. I want a rich logocentrism, and I want to see the logos incarnated in the curriculum, in the way we teach, in the way we assess, in the relationships between classes. I want to see 
a rich logocentrism, a, a incarnation of the logos in the governance of the school, in the decision-making procedures? Is it just Robert's rules of orders? Is it just the way you, you run a business? Or is there something unique to the way your school is governed because Christ is involved? Those are questions to ask yourself if you're starting a school. They're questions to ask uh, a school leader if you're thinking about putting yourself or your children into the school. They're questions to ask if you're homeschooling. What can you do today to be a little bit, to take one step toward being more Christ-centered, being more logocentric? And I'm using both terms because if you hear Christ-centered, you're probably immediately becoming spiritual. And if you're hearing logocentric, you might be immediately becoming philosophical. And what I'm trying to say is, don't do that. To be logocentric is to be Christocentric. To be Christocentric is to be logocentric. To be Christ-centered is not just a sentiment. It has a profound impact on the way you think and on, the, on what you think and on how you relate your thoughts to each other. So don't, don't back down from that. Okay, the fourth. How strong is the impulse toward harmony? You know what? If you're Christ-centered, Christ is the principle of harmony. Ask yourself, the school leader, on what principles do you bring harmony to these different areas of the school? It's probably an instructive question. I don't know how much school leadership thinks about these questions, but... I, the question was, if I wanted to start a classical school, what are the top five aspects or ideals? Well, I'm saying the impulse toward harmony that drives thought, that drives emotion, um, the, the need to resolve discord in the human spirit should be top priority, should, should be thought about all the time. So let's, let's do that. Um, and, and then that brings up the fifth um, ideal that I want to mention and that is that all five or six dimensions of the life of the school are, what's the word I want to use here? Permeated. I think that's the word I want to use. Permeated by faith. Driven by faith. And again, this has to mean something. How is the governance of the school a manifestation, an expression of, an incarnation of the faith of the school. If it's, if it's a Christian school, why is it being governed like a secular business? Why, you know, the, we need to think about these things, in other words. Um, how, does, how does faith affect the curriculum? How does faith affect the portrait of a graduate? Is, is the goal... To, to get everybody into the best colleges? Well, what does faith have to do with that? I'm not saying it has nothing to do, but I want to know. If you're, go if you're a college prep school, if you're going to build a, a high school, is the goal to get them into college or is the goal to get them into the kingdom of God? Those two are not incompatible, but I want those questions explored by my leadership. The, the five or six dimensions are are, are uh, the, the atmosphere, the world, in the, let's call it the environment in which the school exists or the family, the home. Um, the second one is, is community that is formed within the environment. Third is the governance and philosophy of, uh, philosophy and practice of governance. Fourth is the curriculum, the, the, the path that every member of the community has to walk. Fifth is the pedagogy, how children are, are introduced to the, the inner life of the community and its values and commitments and what it believes. How is that done? 
And six, how, how does assessment take place? How is the environment assessed? How is governance assessed? What standards is the governance subjected to? Uh, how is the community governed, uh, assessed? How is the curriculum assessed? How are the students and teachers assessed? And how is assessment assessed? All these things need to be to be done on the basis of faith. And and if you if you're looking at starting a school, I can't recommend highly enough that you think about the school in those six dimensions, those six threads, and ask yourself, what does faith have to do with this? What does how does how do each of these six things cultivate wisdom and virtue? How do they cultivate? How do they feed on the true, the good, and the beautiful? Okay, all of those things need to be permeated by faith and need to be logocentric. Now, the four things that I mentioned in the book, I'll just mention right now quickly. Number one is a high view of man. We believe in man as the image of God. We cannot compromise that. Number two is logocentrism. I've said quite a bit about that already. Number three is responsibility for the tradition. We do not impose the Western tradition, for example, on people, but we take responsibility for it, the good and the bad in it, and we pass on what we believe to be good, and we apologize for what we believe to be bad. We don't cling to it. And then fourth, therefore, a pedagogy or a curriculum and pedagogy and assessment that all line up with a Christocentric, a logocentric high view of man and and responsible approach to school. So, so that's, Cheryl, what I would recommend is your five aspects or ideals. Uh, wisdom and virtue, truth, goodness, and beauty, logocentrism, rich logocentrism, an impulse toward harmony, and faith permeating all things. None of those things are easy to do, but you asked for ideals. So maybe the ultimate ideal is the ideal of of ongoing repentance, a, a hunger and a desire for something great for our children that is so intense and so driven by the hope that we have in Christ that we're constantly repenting of the mistakes that we make, whether it be in in a in a interpersonal conversation or in a curricular decision. We're just always, always seeking what's the word? Jesus. Now, the, the, the shorter question for today is asked by Levi, and it's related. He asks, if I'm tutoring children who go to public school and have no say in the way they receive their schooling, what are the most impactful ways I can guide them towards wisdom and virtue? You notice the, the switch here. The first is at the ideal level, and the second is, can I put it this way? It's almost at the, the desperate level. Given the reality of this, these poor kids and their situation, what can I do? Uh, to, to to guide them towards wisdom and virtue, and I'm going to give uh, what 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 I'm going to come across as glib answers, but but I don't know how else to answer it really. I want to say this: that the hunger for wisdom and virtue, and the hunger for the true, the good, and the beautiful in the human spirit, is intense. And the very fact that they aren't getting that cultivated in school means that they're going to turn to something for it. So. Briefly, give them experiences of the true, the good, and the beautiful, even if they're tiny, because one experience of beauty, one experience of truth can overcome a lot of falsehood, can overcome a lot of ugliness. So, so give them little experiences that will arouse that latent dream within them for what they can be. Give them a, a perspective of what it means to be a human. And here's three areas where as a tutor, I think you can do that practically. First, 
in math, don't just teach them process. Teach them how to perceive the harmony that the given mathematical activity enables the soul to perceive. Okay. In addition, three plus two equals five. That's an exciting thing for a little kid who's putting together his his um, teddy bears or candies. Right. That's a truth, and it's a truth that the the soul finds rest in. And so, yes, there are processes, there are procedures that you learn in math, but it's never so that you can take a test. Not, not in real math. It's always so that you can perceive, so that you can resolve some kind of a discord. Let the children experience the discord and then learn how to resolve it. And every time they do that, they have a minor experience of consolation. Okay, so that's how to do it in math. In literature, let them experience the, the, the genuine depth of humanity. You know, what makes great books great books is that the, the characters in these books are so hungry. They want something so much more, right? If, if all you have is these glib, vulgar books written for kids these days where they, all they want to do is avoid pain, then, then that's, gonna, that's degrading. But if, but if the, the book is about a character who wants to get somewhere, wants to achieve something transcendent, some, a, a character for, in a fable even, a character who wants to become a good person, yes, but also a character who wants to perceive some deeper reality, who deals with big questions, characters from, I don't know, with older kids, Dostoevsky even. Um, let them experience that. Get them the richest and deepest literature and, and teach them to look closely. Ask them, what do you think this character should do? Questions like that. Um, let them experience the depth of humanity. And that will make their interesting, their, their reading much more interesting, by the, by the way. So, so um, you know, when we teach older kids how to read, sometimes we're still teaching them phonics, but they're not interested. Um, you can slip phonics in if you have good questions going on, if they need them. But try to stay on the, on the visionary side. Can I call it that? The dream side. What does it mean to really be a great human being? And then third, when it comes to writing... Bring in the canons of, in, of rhetoric, the invention, arrangement, and elocution. Teach them the tools of asking questions, of defining terms, of making comparisons. Tools that enable them to look at the world they live in and think about it and draw their own conclusions because that's an invigorating experience. Even if the conclusion they draw is petty, unimportant. If they can draw their own conclusions, it's a transformative experience. So let them experience the canons and tools of, of rhetoric uh, when you teach them how to write. So those are examples from reading, writing, and arithmetic, if you like. Um, also, I don't know, maybe you're involved in music. Help them to see how everything weaves together. If you can bring in their lives, uh, things that they're experiencing in their lives. And, the, and mimetic teaching is extremely helpful at that. So if you know, any, if you know our, our, our approach to mimetic teaching, look up some other um, materials on our website. Maybe I'll do a podcast on mimetic teaching. Um, but learn to teach mimetically and you'll be able to weave their lives into it. And that, that will give them a taste of the harmony, how everything really does fit together. So that's what I'd leave you with. You, you want to you wanna arouse the latent dream of the true, the good, and the beautiful in their soul, their hungry soul. You want to give them experiences of harmony and math. You want to give them experiences of deep humanity in their literature. And you want to give them 
uh, you want to give them the formal instruction in writing and rhetoric that it allows them to see how thought works by giving them the canons of invention, especially, but also tools of elocution um, like schemes and tropes. Those, those also help. And let them have little tiny, tiny experiences of seeing how everything really does fit together. And Levi, as you're tutoring these kids and all of you as you strive to teach your own children, may the Lord remember you in his kingdom. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.